Greetings, Story Show podcast listeners. The producers of The Story Show are psyched to launch the first of what we hope will be many podcast episodes to come. We're starting with our August 2017 show, recorded live at the Marion Ross Performing Arts Center in Albert Lee, Minnesota. We're releasing both Acts 1 and 2 as separate episodes, but for your listening convenience, we're also packaging each story as an individual episode itself. Here's Act 1. Enjoy. Region Reyes. Uh, you'll hear more from him later. Welcome to the sixth edition of one of Albert Lee's newest traditions, The Story Show. My name is Riley Worth, one of your pit-stained MCs for the night. <laughs> and with the blessing of Angie Zoller Barker, Jeremy Corey Greenis and I were offered the chance to produce this edition of The Story Show. Storytelling, storytelling is, of course, as old as time, or at least as old as the origins of oral language. Young people all across the country have attended summer camps and sat around campfires and been introduced to the great tradition of ghost stories. Ooh. Storytelling is everywhere. The best salespeople sell their products through stories. The best bosses connect with their employees through shared experiences and stories. Every pastor and every church in the country knows they better start their sermon with a story if they want to drive home the lesson. Storytelling is important. I know, because I've fooled a lot of people into thinking I know what I'm doing in life because I'm a decent storyteller. Some people call it the gift of gab. Others have a more vulgar term for it, starting with the word bull. But after having lived in Albert Lee about a dozen years, I knew there were some interesting people with a lot of good stories to tell. And I just needed the inspiration, uh, the vehicle, to convince them to share in a format like you'll hear tonight. My inspiration came in the form of Vicki Holland, who works for SEMCAC, which among many other things, serves as the homeless shelter in Albert Lee. She is an angel with a fascinating life story. Her work is important, and I encourage you to familiarize yourself with SEMCAC. I met Vicki while taking a leadership course a few years ago. I wanted to help her and SEMCAC, and in so doing, help some people who were down on their luck and needed a hand regaining their footing. So I asked some people to share stories about what the word home meant to them, and voila, Albert Lee's version of the story show was born. I say Albert Lee's version because a high school classmate of mine came up with the idea in our hometown and asked me to help her produce it, but she'd be the first to admit that she stole the idea from a program called Listen to Your Mother, which in addition to being good life advice, has become a program that has spread to more than 50 major U.S. cities, including Minneapolis. If you aren't familiar with it, in the year 2017, what do you do? You Google it. So I encourage you to Google, listen to your mother. And among many other hopefully good things, you'll find this show. Besides being good life advice, um, the uh, spoken word um, about talking about mothers was something that I connected with. But I thought, I want to connect with um, things uh, in Albert Lee. So I went with that home. I thought it was a good start. And um, the good news is the story show is not going anywhere. Um, 
despite people's penchant to stay home and stare at their cell phones, um, we have a good thing going here. And Angie is building it into something pretty awesome. So look for future shows um, coming up. Please continue to support the story show. story show. It'll be produced approximately twice per year, every time with a new theme. So while the story show did not originate here, it is 100% locally written and produced. And most importantly, the money raised by your attendance tonight goes to local charities. Here now to tell you about this edition's chosen charity is Jeremy Corey Greenis. Good evening. The Martin Luther King Jr. Scholarship has an interesting history. Some of you might remember a local organization here called Paths to Peace, founded in 2004 to promote peaceful living for all residents in Freeborn County. In addition to establishing monthly peace-related uh, columns in the Alberley Tribune and sponsoring peace-related educational opportunities, including a unique film series at Riverland Community College, Paths to Peace also established a scholarship award each year to a graduate, to award each year to a graduating senior who had demonstrated a commitment to peace and justice in their lives. In 2012, Paths to Peace membership diminished, perhaps due to an increased general sense of security and well-being. Thanks, Obama. <clears throat> and the group disbanded. However, we still had funds in our accounts, and there was an interest in continuing the scholarship. With help from principal donors and founding members, uh, Toby Thompson and Barb Butler, the scholarship continued but changed names and became the Martin Luther King Jr. Peace Scholarship. Many others have donated over the years, too. And due to a very generous donation from the Albert Lee Seed House, every penny from tonight's ticket sales will go to the scholarship fund. Every penny. So they covered all of our expenses. So thank you, Seed House, and thank you, dear audience, uh, for coming tonight and supporting our readers. Our first reader. Scott Persig lives in Albert Lee with his high school sweetheart, Sherry. You may see Scott gleefully carrying mail in the Shoreland Heights area each day. You walk in your spare time, he gets paid for it. Scott and Sherry live vicariously through their three grown sons, partaking in their jobs, passions, adventures, and travels. Scott also has a passion for travel, whether it's a solo canoe trip through the wilderness, a trip anywhere with his wife, visiting his son in Spain, or to a different NFL stadium every year with his sons to watch his beloved Vikings. His most treasured possessions are the accumulated memories those trips have provided. The Great Show by Scott Persig. Hey, I've got an idea. Let's drive straight north into northern Ontario until we literally run out of road. Put our canoe in there and start paddling north as far as we can. Then have a bush plane pick us up when we're done. My canoeing partner knew. He knew. That's exactly what I was thinking. It was 1994, and we had traveled throughout the two million acre Boundary Waters Quetico country the previous 16 years, and we're looking for something even bigger, even more remote, even more challenging. So that September, we did just that. 
We drove into Canada until the roads ended and started our trip. Heading north from there, we wouldn't hit another road until somewhere in Russia. Well, we probably wouldn't make it that far, but we planned on traveling well over 100 miles. Traveling large lakes one after another, not seeing another person, filled me with elation and excitement. The portages, a trail between two bodies of water, were a nice break in between the long paddles. Places to camp were not always easy to find, but wherever we plopped our tent, it seemed like it was a spot saved just for us. I was in awe on one of the first evenings while making camp. I realized that the beating of my heart was the only sound to be heard. I stopped chopping for a second and listened. Not a sound. The Northwoods can surprise you sometimes with its absence of sound. When the birds, insects, and the like are still, the silence is not only captivating, but it's mesmerizing. And the vastness of this land that was so far north made the stillness even more spellbinding. Well, this elevated my appreciation of our adventure to an even higher level. Several days in, on one of the largest lakes in our trip, we were greeted with rollers one after another in our path. As I surveyed our passage down the expanse of the lake, I was impressed and humbled at the size and power of the waves, but truth be told, I felt intimidated, frightened. Hugging the shore and making impromptu portages, we advanced deliberately down the lake. The end of the lake coincided with the end of the day. Exhausted and hungry, we rounded a point to head up the channel we needed to follow. To our surprise and excitement, we saw a flying cabin with no one around. Hmm. After a tough wilderness day, a cabin and a bed might feel pretty darn good. As we walked up to the cabin, we realized that someone had left behind full cases of beer that were just sitting by the front door. <laughs> about the time we thought about investigating the cabin and, well, to be honest, the beer, a man suddenly walked out the door, standing guard over the beer like a mama bear protecting her cubs. After the usual grilling and how exactly we got to their lake without a plane, he slowly began to warm up to us. He finally explained the inactivity at the camp. My three buddies are out fishing, he said. I, I stayed behind because I didn't feel well. Hearing about the challenges of the trip, and in particular the struggles crossing the lake, he glanced over to a smaller cabin set behind theirs. There's an extra cabin back there if you guys want to stay, he offered. We politely declined. It would have lessened the challenge we demanded of ourselves when we planned this trip. Sharing the camp with those that arrived through the air and all the luxuries that come with that opulence seemed unnatural, so we hopped back in the canoe and moved on. Paddling away, however, we looked longingly over our shoulder at the patrol brews, and we accepted the fact that those beverages were a luxury not granted to our way of travel. We did not know it at the time, but the indisposed sentinel of the Molson would be the last person we would see until our last lake. As the days and the lakes fell in line behind us, we fell into the rhythm of a peaceful wilderness canoe travel, a rhythm only experienced after several days into an excursion like this. Our lake travel shifted to river travel for a few days. The change was delightful and enjoyable, but also demanding and arduous. The portages, although marked on the map, were seldom used, and there were numerous rapids that weren't marked. It was exasperating and exciting all at the same time. After the river, we had just one more lake to cross before we got to the last lake. Our bush pilot was familiar with the pickup lake because he owned a fly-in cabin on it. Now, we hadn't passed any cabins in several days and were desperately hoping our last day would continue with that quiet serenity. As we ran a little rapids that entered into that last lake, we were euphoric. 120 miles between us and the nearest road, we arrived at that final destination knowing that we had carried all our food, shelter, minimal necessities on our backs. On the scarcely used portages, we 
grappled with every branch or fallen tree that was in the way, slogged through the mud, and at times had to hop from one rock to the next. These tasks would have been incredibly demanding even without the heavy packs or canoe on our backs. On the water, we cursed the wind that brought the rollers, and additionally, we were stymied by the rapids not marked on the map. It was a labor of love, and all worth it, and even better than I had imagined. The pine duff, the rocks, the little mosses are lazy boy. The ground are bed. I not only fell closer to the wilderness, I felt a strong kinship to those who had traveled that same country long ago, knowing we had traveled in the same manner, every inch not achieved by some mechanical means, but by our own sweat and equity. But as we were paddling around looking for a suitable campsite, we heard the unfamiliar but now strikingly obnoxious sound of a motor. And sure enough, a boat was headed our way. It was an older couple who flew in just a couple of days before. It took us a better part of a half hour to convince them that we actually paddled and portaged all that distance to get there. Here, take a few fish, the old man said as he lifted his stringer of walleyes. We have plenty. Isn't this lake beautiful? Our cabin's in the perfect spot over on that point. He had a smile all the while he was talking. You could tell he loved being there. Come on over later if you want, he said over the roar of the outboard as they pulled away. But as I watched their boat head back toward their cabin, I thought about how we both arrived at that spot in such a different fashion. To us, the lake seemed so remote and wild, we'd worked so hard to get there. We'd travel lake after lake all alone. To them, the lake was a plane ride, probably taken right after a Grand Slam breakfast at Denny's. They probably digested it on board the plane while taking a nap. And when they arrived, the pilot unloaded all the comforts they wanted for their time in the North Country and carried it all right into their cabin. That night after we finished supper, we wandered down to the shore in the dark. What we saw was the greatest natural show I have ever witnessed. The northern lights were in their full glory, a spectacular display of stunning, vivid colors, coupled with wild, intense dancing movement, covering most of the sky as if to say joyfully, this is your reward, guys. As our hoops and hollers finally faded into the night with a light show, we headed off to bed. With a clear night and no clouds, we took off the rain fly so we could look up at the heavens as we fell asleep. Laying in my sleeping bag, looking up at the sky, I thought about that old couple again. I'm sure the northern lights looked the same to them. Did it feel the same to them? Could it? Does it really make a difference that we journeyed to this latitude by a different mode and speed of travel? The next morning, we headed out one last time to catch a few fish for breakfast. After landing a couple of northerns, we saw the old couple fishing over in the quiet bay. We paddled over to share with them the camaraderie and wonder of the previous night's exhibition. We didn't see anything, the old man said. Turns out they missed it all. They were under their roof, in their cabin, away from the wind, the bugs, the chill, away from the great show. Hours later, our pilot broke the still northern silence when we heard his beaver plane come soaring over the tree line. The 120-mile ride back took no time at all, really. But looking down, I knew that traveling quickly up in the air in this way, the wilderness just didn't have the same opportunity to soak in and become a part of us. I thought of wilderness guide, teacher, and author Sigurd Olson's words in his book, The Singing Wilderness. You need to work for the joy of knowing the wilderness. You need to travel like a mole, burrowing through the timber or brush or portages, creeping slowly down the rivers and over wind-roughened lakes. Learn the feel of the rocks under your feet. 
and be a part of the wilderness itself. As I watched the cumbersome trees turn into little sticks, I kept thinking about the smile on that old man's face. And I realized that maybe the old couple found the peace they sought as well. But I wouldn't have found it their way. For me, the only way to find that peace was to truly become a component of the wilderness itself and travel through it gradually, just like we did, one stroke and one step at a time. Thank you, Scott. Radio voice. Uh, Anne Austin is a rather eccentric person, though most who encounter her may not recognize this because she tries really hard to appear normal. <laughs> she enjoys reading upside down, eating plants and nature that may be poisonous, and playing subtle jokes on people when inclined. She loves living in Albert Lee because she's been able to find some really peculiar people to spend time with who keep life interesting. If bored, she will turn into the human equivalent of a gremlin. So it's important that she stays active with things like the story show and trying to solve all of the world's problems. Peace in a Moment by Ann Austin. The title for my story tonight is loosely, ba loosely based on a book by the Dalai Lama, The Universe in a Single Atom. It's such a beautiful title. Though a Buddhist, the Dalai Lama has always held reverence for Christianity and the study of science. He has an amazing ability to simplify concepts into a meditation and reconcile issues the rest of the world is so divided on. Something as simple as the concept of peace. <coughs> the first threat of violence I experienced was as a young child around the age of two or three. We lived in a small house in Princeton, Minnesota. I loved spending time outside watching ants and playing in the trees. One morning as I walked down our front sidewalk, I saw a little hornet on the ground injured and in need of help. I reached down to pick him up and heard my boyfriend from next door shout out, stop, as he barreled over on his tricycle to crush it. In shock, I looked at him. He said, it was going to sting you. I ran to the house, and just like a classic Hitchcock thriller, the screen door was covered in hornets. It took all my bravery to open the door and run inside. Safe. Fear sets quickly in the heart. It took until I was a young adult, gardening alongside little bee and hornet friends to appreciate them. I've always found peace in nature. Being around trees and plants and working um, in the soil calm me. If I'm not outside on a regular basis grounding myself, I get agitated and overstimulated. Human beings are so exhausting. <laughs> I lost one of my good friends to a drunk driver in the eighth grade. Her name was Charity. She was vivacious and bullheaded and strong and had the best laugh. I would stay in her ice house in the winter and we would name stars for ourselves and snowmobile until our extremities froze. She introduced me to yellow raspberries and we would kill fireflies so we could steal their glow to smear in our bodies. She was somewhat of a bad influence on me, but I loved her. Counselors sat with us at school and we drew pictures on big posters and shared stories of her. I went to her wake with some friends. 
I had seen my grandparents in caskets, motionless, but this was different. She still looked so alive. How could she be so unanimated? I expected her to sit up laughing maniacally as she did, but there was nothing. It was also wrong. I left to sit outside. No one knew I was gone. I didn't want them to. It was late fall and the cold hurt my lungs, but it felt good. I wasn't numb. I could feel how far the air reached into my bronchioli. I felt alive and grateful to be alive and to have loved her. In that moment of solitude, I felt peace. Later on, I found out Charity's parents forgave the man. I had mixed emotions, but I knew it was right. Though he caused them great pain, it was worse to live in anger. And he was already dealing with demons of his own. We can never escape the darkness within, but we can learn to live with it and forgive. I went to Norway during a study abroad program the fall of my senior year. It was partly to get away from a boy, who I later married and now have two lovely little girls with. <laughs> he still drives me to do dramatic things at times. Norway was a dream. It was beautiful and something was so familiar about the air. The water healed me when I drank from a stream. Shortly after we arrived, 9-11 happened. We were in class in the morning when our teacher told us. We stayed in class because it wasn't a good idea to cancel for the day, since going home would mean we would probably be alone. I was invited that evening by my Norwegian roommates to watch footage of the towers collapsing, but I couldn't do it. I saw glimpses on their television, but it seemed wrong to sit and watch. It was surreal and hard to be so far away from home. <clears throat> I questioned if everything I loved still existed, and if it did, how long they would be around. I wondered if I would ever return home again. On a journey to Flom, which is approximately two hours west of Oslo by train, we stopped in a place called Myrdal. On the train ride, I watched the landscape fly by, somewhat numb. It seemed so pointless to be part of a world determined to destroy itself. I walked along a small path toward the distant mountains. I had to stop at a point because I was overcome by a compulsion, one that was so honest and raw that I scared myself. I believed if I took another step, I would not stop, but instead continue on to a rocky outcrop in the distance, to live alone or perish, but to finally be free. I had a choice to make in that moment, to run away or stay in this world and try to fix things. I stayed and still keep a picture of Myrdal on my desk, a reminder of the commitment I made. I knew in my heart and my soul and my mind it wouldn't be easy, but I found peace in that moment. My favorite meditation is from the Tao Te Ching. Empty your mind of all thoughts. Let your heart be at peace. Watch the turmoil of beings but contemplate their return. Each separate being in the universe returns to the common source. Returning to the source is serenity. If you don't realize the source, you stumble on confusion and sorrow. When you realize where you come from, you naturally become tolerant, disinterested, amused, kind-hearted as a grandmother, dignified as a king. Immersed in the wonder of the Tao, you can deal with whatever life brings you. And when death comes, you are ready. I carried the little book with me every day in my back pocket during one of the hardest periods of my life, when I felt small stabs of fear every day. I read that passage again and again. There is no threat of physical harm, 
but constant questioning of the basis of my existence and a personal philosophy I'd carefully built up over years of struggle to stay present in a world that is so painful. I had devoted myself to make things better, but I realized I was still so weak and affected by others. I internalized my frustrations and it ate away at my soul. I struggled with anxiety daily and could not sleep at night, constantly judging myself for what I did and did not do. Each time I read those words, they provided a small glimmer of light and peace in a moment. And through the guidance of one of my closest friends, I found the courage to speak my truth. And that is when everything changed. Sometimes it is hard to find peace in the middle of chaos we can't control. Feeling suffocated by the weight of the world and the heavy hearts of the people around us. But sometimes it's easy to stop, take a deep breath, and look, really look at the world as it is. To recognize our great capacity to love and the small and bright glimmer of hope that appears on the horizon if we choose to keep following our path. I had a dream once that I was looking out over a grassy field. It was gray, almost dusty. I noticed a small fold of something by my foot and peeled it up to see a world golden and lovely. I stepped out into that world and felt infinite peace. Sometimes when I'm with my family or in a particularly inspiring meeting or just driving around town, I see glimpses of that world and I have hope. Wow. <laughs> Jim Wickman has worn a great many hats during his life, among them farmer, student, teacher, world traveler, mental health worker, dog walker, deli worker, salesman, caretaker, union activist, and protester. He enjoys quiet sports like canoeing, hiking, riding bike, snowshoeing, and cross-country skiing. He has a curious mind and is frequently seen examining plants, insects, and other assorted critters or watching the sky both day and night. As a jack of all trades but master of none, he's an amateur farmer, electrician, carpenter, and can often be found walking the aisles of local hardware stores. He likes to think of himself as a quiet man with a lot to say. Blue Jay by Jim Wickman. I grew up the middle child of seven on a small farm in south central Minnesota. It was a fairly idyllic childhood, and my memories of those years blend together into a pleasant, warm feeling. I was a pretty typical farm kid, curious, respectful, and quiet. My brothers and I spent our days playing and fighting and exploring, but I was also stubborn to a fault and, frankly, more than a little hot-tempered. My mother often says that I had a long fuse, but when I blew, watch out. My youngest brother likes to tell people that he could run faster scared than I could mad. <laughs> I believe it was my temper that led to an incident that still stirs up the same feelings of regret and shame that I felt at the time it happened. It was a pleasant summer day when I was 10. I was enjoying the outdoors by myself, which was a rare event having three younger brothers. The exact details of what I was doing escaped me and are probably not important, but whatever I was doing led me to our machine shed. 
a simple 90-foot-long corrugated steel pole shed with wide doors and open rafters. As I entered, I startled a blue jay, which had been sitting on a rafter, causing it to fly to the back of the shed. While blue jays were common on our farm, and it was not uncommon to have sparrows or an occasional pigeon in the building, a blue jay inside was something new, and the opportunity to see one up close was something I couldn't pass up. I quickly pulled the door shut to cut off its escape route and wound my way through a maze of tractors and machinery to the back of the shed. In my mind, I assumed the bird would simply sit still and let me get close enough for a good look. Of course, this was a wild bird and not at all interested in being observed at such close range, so it simply flew over my head back to the other end of the shed. Foiled in my first attempt, but still believing my plan would work, I turned and followed. I'm sure it doesn't come as a surprise that as I got close again, the jay once more flew over my head to the back of the shed. This scene repeated itself several times before I realized my plan wasn't working. Do the words stubborn to a fault ring a bell? At this point, I was pretty frustrated and looked around for a way to keep the bird from flying past me. I quickly found what I thought was the answer a 10-foot length of bamboo that my father kept on hand in case we'd ever need a 10-foot length of bamboo. <laughs> in my eyes, the need had finally arisen. My new plan was that when the bird flew, I would simply wave the stick in front of it. Not being able to get past me, it would have to sit there and let me look at it. A great, a great idea in the mind of a 10-year-old, perhaps, but in practice it obviously didn't pan out as I'd hoped. A bird, used to flying through the trees, had no problem dodging a thin bamboo pole. After several more failed attempts, my frustration was near the boiling point. Why wouldn't this stupid bird just sit still? All I wanted to do was look at it. I wasn't going to hurt it. In hindsight, there is no doubt in my mind that the bird was by now exhausted and terrified and just trying to get away. But in my growing anger, there was no empathy or compassion. It was all about me and what I wanted. So even though I don't recall making a conscious choice, in that moment, in a blind rage, I'm sure it was a short, easy step from waving the pole in front of the J to swinging the pole at it. Eventually, or perhaps I should say inevitably, one of my swings connected, and then another, and another, until finally it lay in the dust at my feet, dead, its neck broken. I slowly calmed down and came to my senses. Picking it up, I finally got that close-up look I had wanted so badly. But as I held the limp body, the realization of what I had done hit me. I was holding what had been, just moments earlier, a beautiful living creature whose only crime had been being in the wrong place at the wrong time. To say I felt, to say I felt incredibly ashamed of myself doesn't begin to describe what I was feeling. I doubt that my 10-year-old mind could have put words to it, but I knew what I had done was beyond wrong. It was cruel and brutal and inhumane. Suddenly, I was afraid that someone would walk in and see what I had done, and I would have to try to explain myself. 
I'm sure I would have added to my shame by lying about how I came to be holding this blue jay. But no one came in, and in order to hide what I'd done from everyone, including myself, I tossed the bird's body over a fence into some tall weeds. I had no thoughts of giving it a dignified burial. I just wanted to be rid of it. But I remember walking away feeling as if I had added insult to injury with this crude method of ridding myself of its presence. And I never told anyone about what I did that day. It's been nearly 50 years since I killed that blue jay. And my life has taken many, many twists and turns. I've traveled far and lived in many different places. I've waded in three different oceans and straddled the equator. It took a lot of years and a lot of miles. But I eventually forgave that 10-year-old boy for his actions that summer day long ago. Even so, I often think of that blue jay. Its body may have ended up in the weeds, but its ghost still sits on my shoulder. While Jennifer Vogt Erickson likes to form opinions on big issues, her least favorite thing is choosing what to wear in the morning. She would secretly like to pull on identical outfits every morning like her grandfather did. Her journey toward inner peace will reach a milestone on August 21st. It is the alignment of her birthday, a solar eclipse, and most importantly, the first day of kindergarten for her youngest child. <laughs> In the meantime, she is working on Save Our Hospital activities, and she has given up house cleaning until further notice. <laughs> Nut to Crack Before I Sleep by Jennifer Vogt Erickson. My voice might be a little raspy. I was um, trying to crack a nut earlier today in Rochester. <clears throat> My name is Jennifer, and I'm a Leo, born in the year of the dragon. I like long struggles for good causes on the beach, in the legislature, in coffee shops, or in the streets. I'm not really into zodiacs, of course. It may be a paradox, but I'm most content when there's a big nut to crack. In a world where the strong prey on the weak, there will always be something to struggle for. It's up to us to realign the stars. I was brought up in a household I felt very safe in. It was loving and consistent, which it turns out are two of the most important things kids need for healthy development. But I was also naive, until much later, to violence and the consequences of violence that many people experience. I was aware of famine in Ethiopia and wars in Central America, but these were an abstraction to a kid in well-ordered, well-watered Minnesota. The signs were there, of course, that not all was peace and harmony on the home front, but we went about our business and bought into the idea that people who had trouble were asking for it. The first time violence against women really hit home was in 1991 when I was not quite 15. An 18-year-old woman, Karen Strufert, had disappeared after her waitress shift at Perkins in Grand Rapids. 
Her friends had offered her a ride, but she had declined. It was a beautiful mid-June night to walk home. She was young and athletic. She should have made it home. Within a week, a man made a convoluted confession to police. His conscience was a spade that unearthed Karin with two gunshot wounds in her head from a shallow grave down a logging road not far from where I lived. He and another man had used, destroyed, and discarded Karin in one horrific night in the lonely forest under the indifferent stars. The following winter, the trial took place in Aiken County across the street from my high school. Two of my best friends were in Mrs. Sandberg's Law for Personal Business class, and they observed a day of the trial as a field trip. They described the proceedings at lunch with dampened appetites. I signed up for Mrs. Sandberg's class the following year, and we traveled to Brainerd for observation in the Crow Wing County Courts. There, I learned that strangers weren't the biggest danger to women. The men in their own homes were. I was drowsy with cold medicine in the warm courtroom until a man appeared before the judge for domestic assault. He was charged with beating his pregnant girlfriend. That alone shocked me, but the charges read that he had also kicked her in the abdomen as she lay on the floor. This was the first time the reality of women being this vulnerable in intimate relationships entered my consciousness. Fast forward 23 years, and Mrs. Sandberg was in the news herself as part of a story involving violence against women. Her husband, Steve Sandberg, was a sheriff's deputy guarding a man on suicide watch in a psychiatric ward in St. Cloud. The man in custody had held his wife hostage for a week, threatening to kill her before she managed to escape. Somehow, he got hold of Sandberg's gun and shot him with it. The man later died as a result of being tasered by another law enforcement officer, and Deputy Sandberg also died of his wounds. Mrs. Sandberg lost her partner, who was a model husband, father, and community member. The other woman who lost her husband was freed of her tormentor, who had isolated and abused her for far longer than just a week. It had been going on for 25 years, since she was a teenager in rural Aiken County. The following year, Ted Nugent came to our Freeburn County Fair and performed his classic Stranglehold. Without the famous guitar riffs, here are some of the lyrics. You remember the night you left me. You put me in my place. Got you in a stranglehold now, baby. You're gone. I crushed your face. Now, Nugent is not a master of metaphor. It's a song about terrorizing a woman who tries to leave a relationship. And it's arguably his most popular song. I love classic rock, and I was familiar with this song, but didn't catch on to the lyrics until just before the show. And it hit me with the same force as when I listened to the man admit to the judge that he had kicked his girlfriend, aiming the blows at his own unborn baby. Maybe, hopefully, Nugent has retooled his original lyrics to conform to societal norms and good taste. And just recently, in the wake of the shooting at the Republican baseball practice in June, he said he's going to tone down his rhetoric. I nearly fell off my chair when he said that his wife has convinced him that we have got to be civil to each other. I am cautiously optimistic that this nut has cracked a little. I think we can find even more common ground on this issue of violence against women if we are civil 
and if we include a group that maybe isn't obvious but makes sense because they are often involved in domestic violence incidents. Police. Too many US law enforcement officers, like Steve Sandberg, are killed or injured as a result of handling domestic disputes. It's the top reason police officers get killed by other people in the line of duty while responding to calls. From 2010 to 2014, 20% of the 132 officers killed in the line of duty while responding to dispatcher calls or checking out suspicious activity were felled as the result of domestic disputes. Furthermore, the perpetrators of mass shooting events or terror attacks often also have a history of domestic violence. This was the case at the Republican baseball practice in which a police officer and a special agent were shot but survived as they defended people and brought the gunmen down. It was the case in the Dudley Pulse nightclub shooting last summer. Domestic violence is a public safety issue. So, these underlying issues of women being objects to control, to use as desired, and to crush if they exercise free will are really unhealthy, not just for women and their children, but for society and the police who protect civil order. There are many things we can do. Raise our children with different attitudes, fight the stigma of domestic violence, and lower barriers for women seeking to get out of violent situations. Three women die every day from domestic violence, and they are most in jeopardy when they try to leave. We can't leave this to the stars. I think it's high time we have a domestic shelter in this county. I've been working with some dedicated community members on the groundwork for pulling this together. I was thrilled that this year, instead of Ted Nugent, our fair entertainment included Martina McBride, who has been a spokesperson for the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Opening a domestic shelter is a way to seek peace on one of the most important fundamental levels in our community. This is a nut worth cracking. Thank you. Ross Persig <clears throat> is psyched to be a part of the Story Show crew once more, as storytelling through film is his biggest passion, and let's face it, he likes the attention. <laughs> Even though he enjoys living on the other side of the pond, he makes it back to the U.S. for holidays for the annual Persig board game bash on New Year's Eve. He is a TED Talk junkie, and if you really want to get him going, just mention education, globalization, or the Backstreet Boys. The Man in Auschwitz by Ross Persig. Kazimierz Piechowski was sent to Auschwitz death camp when he was 19. He was a Polish Boy Scout, a group that the Nazis hated as they were dedicated to serving Poland. At the camp, Piechowski would have to watch countless people forced out in front of the wall of death completely naked before a German officer would shoot them. He had to pick up the corpses by the ankle while another prisoner grabbed them by the wrists and they stacked them in a cart. Prisoners had to keep a bowl, both for eating and going to the bathroom. The food they were given was meager, usually a watery soup with bits of rotten potatoes if you were lucky. Losing this bowl meant starvation and death. 
One day during roll call, Piachowski saw a prisoner run from the line and throw himself on the electric barbed wire fence, killing himself. He knew he, he couldn't let himself feel that hopeless or he would do the same thing. He needed to keep living. After almost two years in the camp, Piachowski was still alive, but things were getting more horrible and twisted. They started building gas chambers to kill thousands of people, people in a matter of minutes. One of Piachowski's friends saw that his own name was on the execution list. He suggested to Piachowski that they try the impossible to escape from Auschwitz. Piachowski thought he was crazy to think of such a thing, but another prisoner who was also interested in escaping worked as a mechanic for the soldiers at the camp, fixing the officer's car. He was often allowed to test drive it around the camp. But even if they stole the car, they weren't going to be able to just drive out in their prison uniforms without being noticed. They needed German Nazi uniforms. One day, Piachowski saw the German word Bekleidungskammer on a door. Piachowski was fluent in German as he lived near the German border and had German friends as a kid. He knew Bekleidungskammer meant clothing, and clothing meant SS uniforms. Well, they recruited two other guys who wanted to escape, and the four of them met in an attic to go over their plan and agreed that if they failed, they'd shoot themselves, because shooting a German officer meant the death of 10 innocent prisoners. When the day came, they opened a hatch and jumped down into an underground corridor leading to the uniforms room. Once they made it to the room, they quickly put on the uniforms and took the weapons that, ironically, they couldn't use. They stole the car and were now driving it towards the exit of the camp. As they passed a Nazi on his bike, he saluted them, Hal Hitler! They hid their surprise and saluted right back, laughing and, and terrified at the same time. They were approaching the main gate. Then things stopped being funny. As the car got closer, the soldier at the gate didn't open it. 80 meters away, the gate was down. 40 meters, still down. 20 meters, the soldier didn't raise the gate. They knew now that their plan had failed. They were so close to freedom, but they resigned to their fate. They started saying their prayers, saying goodbye to their mothers and their minds. As the car slowed five meters away, the prisoner behind Piachowski nudged him and said, which meant do something. He knew it was literally life or death, literally now or never. With his Nazi uniform on and his knowledge of the German language, he knew he had to become the Nazi officer. When the car stopped and the German looked at the car, Piachowski opened the door, cocked his rifle, and yelled in German, Are you asleep, you fool? Open the gate or I'll open you up! The German soldier was, was scared. He saw Piachowski's rank and apologized. Entschuldigung, And he opened the gate, allowing the four men to drive away to freedom. I discovered Kazimierz Piachowski's story two years ago after watching The Runaway, a documentary about his escape. After more research, I discovered he was still living in Poland. I, I instantly felt this intense need and desire to meet him. I, I didn't know how or when but I needed to do it. A year went by, and I managed to get an opportunity to go back to teach English in Spain. 
While in Spain, I bought a ticket to Poland during Easter week, my only vacation days. I still had no idea how or if I would meet Kazimierz Spichowski. Then I thought about emailing the Auschwitz Museum, and I did. I emailed them and asked for any contact information they may have. I assumed they either wouldn't email me back or that they would tell me that this is confidential information. But a few days after, they responded saying something I found almost too unreal to believe. We contacted Mr. Piachowski, and he agreed to give you his phone number. I was shocked. I, weeks later, I contacted a, a Polish guy named Marek via Couchsurfing.com, who also wanted to meet Kazimierz Piachowski and who lived in the same city as him. So Marek ended up calling Kazimierz Piachowski to arrange a meeting. And eventually, Piachowski agreed to meet with us. But there was one problem. He couldn't meet during the time I would be in Poland. He said he could meet in a couple weeks' time. This was my Zrupsosh moment. Who knows how long I'll be in Europe or how much longer Piachowski would be alive, honestly, because he's almost 100 years old. I needed to take action. So I bought another ticket to Poland for the next weekend to visit Mr. Piachowski. I got there. Marek and I were nervous and excited. We get to the house. We ring the doorbell. We hear his voice, and there he was. I couldn't believe I was, I was shaking hands with a man who lived through and escaped from Auschwitz. He invited us in. He gave us something to drink. He showed us his photo album of his travels from all around the world. I asked him to write, Zrupsosh, do something, on, on a piece of paper. I felt so honored and inspired after Mark and I said goodbye. Meeting him was a dream come true. So a few months go by, and eventually it's Easter week. Remember, I had already bought a ticket to Poland during this time. So I went back to Poland. When walking along the streets with a Polish friend of mine, Claudia, we happened to run into Kazimierz Piechowski, just by chance. She, she nudges me. I'm like, there he is. Uh, my heart was pounding. I didn't know what to say to him. I didn't know if he would remember me or be offended. I, I didn't know. But I walked up to him. I introduced myself again. And I told him, I, I actually had taken what he wrote on a piece of paper, Zrupsosh, and I brought it to my friend, Jorge, who was a tattoo artist. And I got the words tattooed on my arm in his handwriting, exactly how he wrote it on paper. Meeting him once was already a dream come true, and then running into him once more and being able to show him how much his story affected my life made it all even more significant. And now I have regular contact with his nephew, Daniel, who arranged a ceremony to celebrate the 75th anniversary of his uncle's escape this year. Sadly, there is a tragic twist to the story. Kazimierz Piachowski never really escaped from Auschwitz. His physical body did, but even today he still has nightmares of his time there. On top of that, he's had an extremely tragic and difficult personal life. Shortly after Auschwitz, the Soviet government imprisoned him for seven years more. They stole my youth, he said. And when he got out, a woman he had fallen in love with had already gotten married and she had had children. Heartbreak plagued him ever since. And though he was eventually able to travel the world, he's still not able to leave the demons in his mind. Auschwitz is a museum for us, something in the past, but for Kazimierz it's still real. I'm left wondering, is it possible to find peace after so much darkness? Who pays for a stolen life? 
stolen dreams? What makes life worth living, and how can we give peace back to those who've had it stolen from them? Well, one thing was clear for Kajimirsh, one thing was clear for me, and one thing should be clear for all of us. We have to zruptosh. We have to do something. Right. Uh, <clears throat> Although Regen Reyes has feet itching for good travel and adventure, he still enjoys the humdrum rhythm of hometown living. And by that, he means sleeping in his own bed and eating for free. <laughs> Somehow, whenever he's home, his former teachers like to talk him into peculiar events. Some of you may have witnessed it at last year's rally for civility. Others are witnessing it for the first time now at this story show. But if there's one thing Regan has learned over his years of travel, it's that going with the flow usually works out, no matter how peculiar the situation. And joining Regan is Rika Borsma, and she enjoys depleting her savings account for the sake of travel pretending she's tough and outdoorsy and singing loudly in the car. If there's one thing she's good at, it's complaining about first world problems. She hopes to teach children someday because she basically still is one and hopes to see the world so as to brag about it on social media.
So many goosebump moments already. Um, we're going to take a 10-minute intermission, but um, please make it. We're going to actually do 10 minutes, not longer. You know, say 10 minutes and go longer, because I see Rosa Corey Greenis is in the house, and I'm sure she has a bedtime. We don't want to have her out too late. So, um, so yes, 10-minute intermission. We'll see you back here for four more stories in just a bit. The Seeking Peace Story Show is produced by Riley Wirth and me, Jeremy Corey Greenis. To hear more, check out our Facebook page and the Story Show podcast. Our outro music was composed by Jasper Corey Flatto.